This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this Thursday. And I tell you what, folks, we do not have a shortage of news today to discuss. Earlier this morning, Uncle Sam reported that second quarter GDP in this country fell point. 9%, so nine-tenths of a percent GDP was down. That's the second quarter in a row we have seen negative GDP. Dr. Jason Miller, uh, supply chain professor at Michigan State, will be joining us in segment two to discuss the GDP issue. And then in segment three, we are going to hear from Iowa's senior senator, Charles Grassley. I talked yesterday on the program about this 15% global minimum tax deal being dead in the Senate because Senator Joe Manchin had come out against it. Well, last night, Senator Manchin made me a liar. He had a conference. Uh, meetings with uh, Senator Schumer. They got together. They came up with a compromise climate tax and energy bill that uh, they expect to see a vote in the Senate. Senator Grassley will bring us up to speed on what he's looking at with regard to that bill. And then we're going to close the show talking with Todd Neely of DTN about a strange little court case against Smithfield in Washington, D.C. Before we get into all of that, though, folks, we also have some excitement developing in the markets today. Joining me to discuss it is Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing up there in Britain, South Dakota. Dwayne, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime, Mike. Before we get into the market moves today, Dwayne, I need a crop update from South Dakota. I've seen a lot of corn pollinating here in the central part of the Corn Belt. How's it looking up there? Yeah, the same. Pollinating pretty good up in the northeast here, finally. Um, North Dakota in pretty darn good shape for the most part as well. Our trouble issue is the far southern part of the state, uh, South Dakota, that is. Uh, southeast part, kind of missed the rains all spring long. They didn't have the subsoil moisture, which means they actually got the crop in on time. And I thought they were our bright spot for the longest time, but they are turning dry. And, and with the hot forecast, they're in the bullseye of that stuff for next week or for the next two weeks, I should say. So there was a few thunderstorms that rolled through yesterday in those areas. So you got, you know, but those are so spotty. If you got it, you're feeling good. If you missed it, you're you're wondering about chopping silage. It sounds like it's getting that desperate there. But for the most part, I, I'm going to say that's what 25, not even 25% of the Dakotas here that I'm talking about. So the most part, we're looking pretty good. Dwayne, you said something interesting there, and it's something I've heard from a lot of corn growers slash cattlemen up there in the Dakotas, is that this year looks like year we are going to be chopping a lot of silage. Do you have a sense that we might be chopping enough to throw off the harvested acre number quite yet? Um, no, I don't think so. Not compared to normal, not, not as, as far as the nation goes, but I mean, well, the month of August will probably determine that a lot. You know, it's, if you can't get some rain to at least see it corn fill a little bit better, then you might decide to, to chop more. I mean, the guys in the southern part of the state have mentioned that to me. They're going to chop a, one or two more quarters for the big dairy, local dairy than they were before. So it's, it's a possibility, but I don't think we've gone that far nationwide yet. All right. So we are still keeping our eyes on the weather. Dwayne, looking at the movement today, particularly in the corn and wheat market, is this a play on that weather scare that could be coming this next week? It absolutely is in all the commodity, grain commodities. We've bounced this week nicely off the lows uh, due to a flip in the forecast. You know, we had the heat kind of out of the system and thought we were going to finish the growing season in good shape. And boy, it came back kind of raging a little bit. And, and now kind of has the bullseye really right over southeast South Dakota through Iowa. So obviously, uh, warranted and justified a little bit of a weather premium again here. And, and that should be led by the soybean market, which it has this week, because, you know, August is the big month for soybeans. Corn, you know, if, you, if you've pollinated already, filled out, you know, weather can't change it a whole lot. And a lot of times the weather market doesn't change much in August for the corn crop. So we'll see going forward here. Well, yeah, and those beans are certainly in the spotlight. I, I want to talk first about bean products, Dwayne. We saw a $500 meal back in March, and this past week, my goodness, we came very, very close. I don't think we quite got to 500 But do you see this meal demand staying strong here for the remainder of the summer as folks get coverage locked up? 
I, I don't think so. I think this is a, a, a short-term spike up. It, it's kind of funny how it happened. The, the basis for raw soybeans dropped the last two weeks, um, like 60-some cents in, in parts of Illinois and Iowa. And you know, basically it felt like, oh, we got enough to get to new crop harvest. And it's like the soybean meal market decided, hey, we don't have enough product to get to harvest. So that went racing higher here this week. And then that helped the soybean basis improve a little bit. So if farmers are selling the last of their old crop here, it should be a short-lived deal in the meal product, I think, because this isn't like this is new demand out of China. Their crush margins are actually negative. So this is just a short-term pinch, in my opinion. As long as we get those supplies, it'll go back down. That is a good point. Dwayne, up north of you right now, we've got the Spring Wheat Quality Tour going on in North Dakota. Have you heard any updates about what they're finding up there in North Dakota? How does that spring wheat crop look? It looks very good, Mike, to be honest with you. It was planted late. We know that. Um, so we're, we're going to need it to, to fill out nicely here at the end. But you know, obviously, uh, we're finding the crop sharply above last year's drought, but also sharply above the, the average, too. We're talking in that 46 to 49 bushels an acre so far, and they got one more day today to look. And Man, it, no, it, it looks darn good, and that's what we've been hearing all summer long. So, And I think they got the acres planted. You know, we found that in June 30th. They, they pushed the spring wheat late. They, they kind of stopped planting the corn up there in the northern plains, decided that they'd rather have late spring wheat than a, than a late uh, corn crop. It's going to be a tough harvest because it's going to be late August when it comes off, but uh, I look for a big crop to come off, though. All right. And it looks like the spring wheat market is up a little bit on the day. I imagine this is just broad spillover support coming from the rest of the grains, Dwayne. Right. Yeah. Despite, you know, my anticipation of a big crop, this wheat price has actually probably dropped far enough to create a harvest low before they even get harvesting the spring wheat crop, which happens quite often. You know, it's more about the winter wheat crop being harvested in the northern hemisphere. You know, the, the Russia-Ukraine news, obviously, you know, trying to get exports open, but I think the market has already priced in better exports than we'll see from Ukraine. I just don't think they're going to get out of it. And, you know, Europe was really hot and dry. That probably trimmed their wheat crop a little bit, really trimmed their corn crop. So, nah, yeah, the wheat market should bounce here a little bit. And I, actually, I like the chart pattern in wheat much better than I do in the corn and soybeans. The corn and soybeans seem like a short-term pop and still a downtrending market, but wheat, I think, is going to make a nice U-shaped bottom here and should be the first one to lead us to higher prices and victory, I will say, this winter. All right. Well, that makes sense. I mean, given the global interest in the wheat market right now, Dwayne, before we let you go, we'd love to get your thoughts here on the livestock markets. Have we seen much cash cattle trade develop so far this week? The little bit that we have has been lower, which is disappointing again for the trade. You know, yesterday was down sharply, but light volume, not a lot moving yet. I, I wouldn't be too concerned about it. I think this is a stronger market moving into what might be a recession, and and it's just domestic demand, Mike. I mean, boy, our, our cutouts are staying high. Lean hogs are just on fire. That product is moving well too. So I, I look for good things in the livestock market moving forward. All right. If we're going into a recession, we're doing it with full bellies, at least, since we're spending the money on the beef. <laughs> Dwayne Bussey, Bolt Marketing, always appreciate your insight on these volatile markets. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stick with us. Dwayne mentioned that we may indeed be in a recession. Dr. Jason Miller from the Michigan State Bor Eli Broad's College of Business will be joining us here in the next segment to talk about exactly what we learned from Uncle Sam on the GDP this morning. Stick around for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend to Max herbicide with vapor grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of Bayer plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development 
From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The American Coalition for Ethanol is hosting its 35th annual conference in Omaha, Nebraska, Wednesday, August 10th through Friday, August 12th. This must-attend event for industry leadership features timely updates on ethanol public policy, market development, board of director training, and more. This event combines the detail of high-level training courses with all the fun of a family reunion. For event details, visit ethanol.org. That's ethanol.org. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We heard from Dwayne Bussey there in segment one that uh, we are seeing these broad market economic fears impact the agricultural sector. We are seeing concerns of recession change the way money flows through the global financial system, and those money flows might see another change after this morning's data. The Commerce Department re released our second quarter GDP data. They report gross domestic product being down 0.9% in quarter two. That's down uh, uh, again after the first quarter slowed down 1.6% in Q1. Joining me today to make sense of these numbers that were released today is Dr. Jason Miller. He works at the University, excuse me, Michigan State University. He's at the Eli Broad School of Business Supply Chain Professor. Dr. Miller, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. I want to start first, I suppose, with a definitional question. Dr. Miller, you've been writing about uh, the business cycle for quite some time, and over the past several days, you've been very cautious to not label this GDP print a recession. Can you tell us why you don't think this uh, second quarter decline calls this a recession? Yeah, so there, there's sort of a an urban legend out there that two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth equals a recession. That is not the case. A group of economists as part of the nonprofit National Bureau of Economic Research get to make the official calls. And they actually don't really look at GDP that much because it's this big aggregate measure that hides a lot of dynamics. And so they really focus primarily on payroll employment, industrial production, um, and then real essentially inflation-adjusted trade sales, so wholesale and retail. And especially when you look at how tight the labor market is right now, it's just impossible to think that we're actually in a recession because that is really the, the big thing that goes once we see a true economic slowdown. 
So that is a really good point. You see those payrolls start to crater first. That's the indication of a recession. That being said, Dr. Miller, this data does not look good from a perspective of economic growth. Are there some bright spots in this report that, that have you optimistic that the economy is going to stabilize at least? Yeah, so looking down and breaking down essentially what pieces of the economy contributed to this negative reading, the most important thing to recognize is that the negative reading was caused by the, quote, change in private inventories component. And what that's actually referring to in a growth standpoint is the acceleration of inventories, which for those of you thinking back to physics, that is the second derivative of inventories. I say that because it essentially doesn't really mean that much um, from a actual practical standpoint. Because what and we're Jason, just so I can take a step back, yeah. because I'm a, I'm a liberal arts guy, so we got to break this down for me here. Change in private inventories. This would be something I'm thinking of like uh, uh, overstocked stores, uh, warehouses full to capacity with inventory, and that's where we're seeing the slowdown develop. Am I understanding you correctly? And so, so this is where it gets really technical is that essentially what you can think happened is our inventories in the second quarter rose seven-tenths of a percent from the first quarter. But in the first quarter, they rose 1.6% from the fourth quarter. 0.7 is less than 1.6. So when I subtract 1.6 or subtract 1.6 from 0.7, I get a negative reading. That's why you just cannot read that much into this quarter's negative statistic because it was driven primarily by this, I'm going to call it accounting technicality, more so than anything. Okay. And so then if we're thinking back through the order here, we and I believe you mentioned this last time we had you on, you were expecting to see that number decline because inventories were so full due to the supply chain disruptions in the pandemic. So this isn't much of a shock to you, is it? It's not that much of a shock. I mean, I, I would say to me, the encouraging parts of this report are one, exports increased. Um, we've been sort of having you know, some issues on the export side, especially with the dollar being as strong as it is. We actually saw seasonally adjusted real exports increase by 3.7%, which is very positive, um, especially for the ag sector, given the key role that plays in our exports. We did see service spending increase, um, which is what we would expect. While we did see the spending on goods decline, we're still substantially above where essentially the pre-COVID trend line would put us at. So it's not pointing to a very sharp contraction of um, you know spending on goods and then sort of the other piece is what we call residential fixed investment so new housing starts and construction as well as you know remodeling activity and while we did see a slowing on the seasonally adjusted basis we are still substantially above where we were in 2018 and especially 2019 and so Part of our challenge right now, looking at these quarterly over quarter or quarter over quarter figures, is we were so supercharged last year due to stimulus that we're having to run faster just to essentially stand still. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I'm curious, you touched on there that the spending on goods versus services, we're still seeing that change as we kind of come out of still come out of COVID. Jason, are you anticipating continued growth in services spending as well as a decline in goods spending over the next couple of quarters as we normalize? You know, I would I would expect that. Um, you know, again, the right now the spending on goods is still, you know, it's it's elevated essentially five percent above where the pre-COVID trend line would put us at, which is a massive amount. Services spending should slowly increase. I mean, as we move into you know the uh, you know the third quarter where we start having you know folks you know back to school education spending and things of that sort. Um, we, you know, we did see imports essentially slowed down a little bit, which is to be expected given just how elevated um, imports have been. And, and again, this is on a seasonally adjusted basis. So what I really take away from the report is the economy has certainly slowed down, but to call this a recession is essentially an insult to every recession in the past because we're not seeing 
the labor market dynamics that we would expect if we were truly in a sustained, prolonged, deep decline of economic activity. Now, that being said, Dr. Miller, I am hearing more and more reports of companies cutting payrolls or slashing open positions. Perhaps they're just not going to fill them. Looking at the data, have we reached a point where wages are now starting to slow down hiring? Is that backed up in the data anywhere? So we're waiting the next jobs report, and we're just not seeing it yet. We're seeing right now the Atlanta Fed's wage tracker has wage growth still going up. It was 6.7% annually as of their last reading, which is actually stronger than at any time, even in the 90s. And of course, we have high inflation that we have to keep in mind. But we're, you know, we're not seeing a sudden decline in quit rates. You know, job vacancy rates are still by far at the high, you know, elevated compared to where they were in 2018 and 2019. What I would encourage people is realize most of the layoff announcements we're hearing are in the tech sector, and that's you know publicly traded. And what I would tell people is that's not Main Street. I mean, not not to be mean, but you know, if uh, I can't remember which one. I think it was Shopify laying off a chunk of their workforce. That's not Main Street. And so I'm much more looking at the government data to see what they're seeing, because those are true stratified random samples that are representative of the actual industry in America, not essentially just the tech sector. Jason, I think that's a really good point. The data that you turn to, could you, could you explain in that a little more detail, why is it that you trust it at, at the levels that you do? Yeah, so the big labor data sources are from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And what they do is every state unemployment agency feeds into them the data for every establishment for state-level unemployment tax filings. That omnibus database serves as the basis for this massive stratified random sample they develop, where each month, 700,000 different business establishments, which captures roughly about, I think, 30% of all payrolls, they report data to BLS on their payroll counts. There's a separate survey done for 16,000 establishments that captures job openings, quit rates, you know, separations, and all of these things. And so what I would always tell folks is these are just massive data sets. They're so much more representative of what's going on. And the analogy I would use coming from, you know, small farm town with a lot of agriculture is just because it's dry in, you know, your area doesn't necessarily mean it's dry 500 miles away where somebody else is growing the crops. That's a great point. Backyarditis can infect us whether we're growing a crop or looking at the economy. Dr. Jason Miller, supply chain professor at the Eli Broad School of Business at Michigan State University. Jason, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk to senior Senator Charles Grassley when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend to Max herbicide with vapor grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system. The system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of Bayer plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, the grain markets are higher across the board here with double-digit strength in cord soybeans and wheat futures as we work through our morning. Bean meal taking a bit of a pause after the August contract set a new contract high again on Wednesday as domestic demand for physical meal looks unusually strong near the end of July. 
The weekly stochastic uh, confirmed a bullish change in momentum for November soybeans as well Wednesday, in line with the bullish signs with demand and next week's hot and dry forecast. Now, we did see soybeans take a breather overnight, but that has been quickly erased as we move to the upside here pretty much across the entire grain and oilseed sector so far today. Now, of course, we're watching everything on Wall Street as it appears the U.S. is in a recession, according to the latest data. But then again, that's not a surprise to Wall Street, which is future looking. It's been pricing in expectations of a recession. As we saw yesterday, the Federal Reserve announced another 75 basis point interest rate hike as expected. The VIX falling below 23 as some fears ease on Wall Street. The dollar index trading near 106.6 this morning after falling to fresh three-week lows near 106 earlier in the session. Crude oil is up roughly 2% here this morning while we continue to watch everything in the outside markets against the grain supply and demand fundamentals. Current numbers in the trade, September quarter up 14 to 3 quarters, 615. December quarter up 15 and a half, 618 and a half. August beans up 13 to 3 quarters, 1592 and a half. November up 20 and 3 quarters, 1430 and 3 quarters. September Chicago wheat up 19 to 3 quarters, 810. September KC wheat up 16 and 3 quarters, 878 and a half. Spring wheat September up 12 and 3 quarters, 922 and 3 quarters. Cattle features are mixed. August live cattle down 15, 136.65. Feeder cattle triple digits lower. August hogs up 135, 119.95. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Yesterday on the program, we discussed the fact that President Biden's climate and tax bill was dead because Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia said he would not support it, fearing more inflation. I talked about that yesterday on the show, and then yesterday afternoon, Senator Manchin came out after talking with Senator Schumer, and they have reached a compromise to move that bill forward. Joining me today to give us some insight onto what exactly is happening there in the Senate is a man who knows his way around those august chambers it's iowa senior senator charles grassley senator grassley thanks for joining us today i imagine it's a busy day over there at the senate probably won't debate what you were talking about until next week but to call this a, a bill to fight inflation it's really an inflation enhancement bill not an inflation fighting bill and it just uh, irritates me when we get a report today that the uh, second quarter is in uh, uh, decline by nine-tenths of a percent, and that's the second quarter, so we're officially in a recession, that they would talk about increasing taxes and more spending feeding the fires of inflation, and then not only that, but increase the taxes through a minimum tax on big corporations uh, and, and put a damper on manufacturing and productivity the very same time as yesterday they passed a bipartisan bill to bring uh, manufacturing, particularly of semiconductor chips, back to the United States. Now they're going to have a corporate minimum tax that's going to discourage onshoring, 
uh, and expansion of manufacturing in the United States. It just does not make sense, and particularly for Manchin to do it in a state like uh, West Virginia, where the depletion tax credit uh, will uh, the minimum tax will hurt the depletion tax credit, which is very important to have a strong mining industry in the state of West Virginia. I just don't see how that uh, all adds up. It, it is interesting, Senator, and I tell you what, it is frustrating to for from my perspective, for the lack of information on this compromise bill, really all I know so far is that this would be a net total expenditure of about $370 billion if this were to pass. Have you seen the text? Has that been floating around? If they're going to debate it next week, how can we do that if we don't have the language? We, uh, we have the language because Chris Conlon from Iowa, he's a member of my tax staff for the last 15 years, He's going through it. He has not completely uh, uh, figured everything out. But what I've told you to this point is what I've been briefed by my lawyer on this issue. And it doesn't sound like very much a bill that's only going to feed the fires of inflation uh, and uh, hurt manufacturing in the United States. Indeed. So we'll let you continue to research the ramifications of this before that debate next week. And Senator, I want to turn our focus to a bill that you and Senator Joni Ernst, also of Iowa, announced yesterday designed to help combat inflation by increasing the supply of fuel, next generation biofuel. Senator Grassley, talk to me about what you guys have introduced. Yes, we all know about biodiesel and ethanol in Iowa. There are several things that you can do beyond just the normal ethanol to enhance it, and this is a bill that would provide incentives from the government for the next generation of biofuels, and it's meant to meet the needs of, uh, of uh, engines that are going to be coming out of uh, American and foreign manufacturing that needs higher octane, so 95 and 98 octane, that we need, and it can only be done by enhanced uh, biofuels, and this is to promote that so that by 2026 we get uh, uh, engines up to 95, and by 2030 up to 98 percent, and that's not only so you can continue to use uh, liquid fluids in your cars uh, and new cars, but also it's uh, for a cleaner environment as well. Absolutely. And Senator, I understand you introduced this bill. It was you and Senator Ernst on the Republican side, but it is bipartisan. Amy Klobuchar, Democrat of Minnesota, and Tammy Duckworth of Illinois have also signed on. I'm always impressed with the bipartisan support of biofuels in the Corn Belt. Senator, I'm curious, how much progress have, have are we making outside the Corn Belt with senators and representatives from the coasts? Are they starting to come around on biofuels, ethanol in particular? <laughs> I presume that where we're going to get the main opposition is from big oil, and that isn't necessarily a Republican or Democrat thing. That's an industry thing and not necessarily uh, limited to the coast, so what we consider the, the Democratic blue parts of the United States. Uh, I, uh, I, I look at it this way. We have 28... Uh, we have 14 states that produce a lot of corn. That's 28 uh, senators. We ought to rely on getting them nailed down before we worry about anything else. Absolutely. And it sounds like they're on board. The, the idea of using biofuels to combat ethanol to help lower this price at the pump. For folks that understand biofuels, Senator, it, it sounds like a slam dunk. I understand you've also got a companion bill introduced in the House as well. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Fantastic. Well, do we have any indication as to when these might make it to the floor or what the next steps would be for these bills? Well, I think at the end of the year, we always have what we call an extenders bill. Several tax provisions sunset every one, two, or three years, and we try to get those reenacted, and it's generally done uh, in a uh, in a uh, non-controversial way if you're just reenacting what's already on the books. 
but this does give us an opportunity to put something new for biofuels into it. It seems to me that that's going to be the best opportunity we have. All right. We'll see if that can get going. Senator, while we're talking about inflation, of course, it's on everybody's mind. I understand that last week you took a look at the child tax credit and said, hey, this should be indexed to inflation. Can you give us an update? How's that conversation going? Are are there other folks in D.C. who agree that that maybe CTC should start to rise with inflation? Well, we have several provisions of the tax code index going back to the 1980s, but not everything is indexed, and it hasn't been much of an issue over the last decade and a half when we had 2% uh, 2 inflation, but now we're up to 9%. So that means the tax credits that haven't been indexed are losing their value. And what I'm trying to do is, whether it's the child credit or several others that we're affecting, uh, is to uh, make sure that it isn't uh, uh, denigrated by the uh, 9% inflation and keep up with inflation. So that's what indexing does. In other words, it just automatically increases the benefits of certain credits uh, with, uh, to reflect inflation. That certainly makes sense. Do you, do you think like that could get some movement here in D.C. Uh, with inflation being such a hot topic today? It sure should be. I have two bills in, the one you mentioned and another one to uh, update a lot of things that have been hurt by inflation that encourage people to save. Ah, yes, that is another crucial way that inflation certainly impacts the markets. And, Senator, another thing we've been waiting on in the Senate, and I know you have been pushing for it, is hearings, nomination hearings on the folks who represent agriculture globally, thinking the USTR, Ag Chief Ag Negotiator, the USDA uh, uh, Ag Export ex, uh, Official. Do we have any indication on when those nominations might make yeah. it to the floor of the Senate for a vote? The ni- nomination for Agriculture Negotiator for special trade representative is going on right now, and I just stepped out of that committee meeting to have this conversation with Iowa farmers through your network, and uh, I think we've got to do a good nominee. When I'm done talking to you, I'll probably go back into that committee meeting and ask him questions, but I did meet with him from 8.15 to 8.40 this morning, and I think he's a person well qualified to do it, and I think he has a tough job, though, because we have an administration that doesn't want to negotiate free trade agreements, and we don't have an administration that's very much interested in agriculture, and they consider free trade agreements a, a tool of the 20th century, uh, not for use today, and that's, uh, uh, that's protectionist thinking. So he's got a tough job, but I think he's a guy that can do it. And as of now, I will probably vote for him. There might be something come up because he's just having his hearing today and takes about 20 days after that to make a determination before he should be put on the agenda to be approved by the Finance Committee, the committee that I used to chair when we were in the majority. Gotcha. So then once he's approved by the Finance Committee, then does it go to the, the full Senate for a vote? Yeah, and I th- I think he'll be approved. He's uh, He's got, he may be, uh, you know, he's been a long time in government in the Department of Agriculture, so he understands agriculture well. He comes up from uh, Pennsylvania as a kid by a part of Pennsylvania that's high uh, in agriculture. Absolutely. He understands the importance of the business that we're in. We were speaking with Iowa Senator Charles Grassley, who has to get back in there to that nomination hearing. Senator Grassley, thanks for joining us. We'll be watching for more updates next week as that climate and tax bill goes before the Senate. Folks, stay with us here on AOA. We're going to check in with Todd Neely about a lawsuit that's happening against Smithfield in Washington, D.C. Stay tuned for more AOA after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 
145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend to Max herbicide with Vapor Grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Are you looking to improve crop nutrition and soil health? Anuvia Plant Nutrients is holding several Future of Fertilizer field tours across the Midwest. The first tour stop is Cedar Falls, Iowa on Tuesday, August 2nd, where Agriculture of America will be broadcasting live. The tour continues in Farmer City, Illinois on August 3rd and Sheridan, Indiana on August 4th. For more information on dates and locations and to reserve your spot, visit us at FertilizerTour.com. That's FertilizerTour.com. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Each week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. Tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. 
This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You know, this week we have spent actually quite a bit of airtime talking about the impact of a local law in California, that AB5 law we've discussed a couple of times, shut down the port at Oakland last week. And we've seen how that local law can have national implications. And we're going to close today with another story, similar issue, a local law, this time in Washington, D.C. The Consumer Protection Procedures Act has allowed Smithfield to be sued over allegations that perhaps they weren't truthful during the pandemic. It's an interesting case, and Todd Neely, staff reporter over at DTN, has been following this particular case. Todd, thank you for joining us here today. Yeah, glad to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me on. So as I understand the situation, effectively, Food and Water Watch, a, a non-governmental advocacy organization, has sued Smithfield, the pork processor, over allegations that perhaps they, they weren't honest in 2020 about working conditions. What's going on here with this case? Yeah, you know, Mike, it's an interesting situation. Um, there's a couple different things going on. Uh, they've alleged uh, that not only was Smithfield not honest about how workers uh, were being protected during the COVID outbreak, uh, but that uh, they take it a step farther in saying that the company had basically exploited uh, consumer panic in a way that, um, you know, that, that would benefit them in the long run. You know, we, if you think back uh, during that time period, you know, the, the uh, Trump administration had worked hard to keep open a lot of these uh, meat production plants. Um, you know, and Smithfield had a plant in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, that it had to close down in uh, April of 2020. Uh, it had like more than 80 workers uh, test positive for COVID at the time. Um, and so the allegations in this lawsuit, which has been ongoing since last summer, uh, is that uh, Smithfield not only was not totally honest about the safety of its workers, but that uh, it took advantage of the situation uh, in, in spreading fear about the, the availability of meat supplies. And so um, that's kind of where we're at now on that case is that the, the court has decided uh, to continue the lawsuit. Um, we could be headed for a trial, uh, you know, and, and whether, like you said, local issues a lot of times uh, seem to be uh, something that a lot of people don't really pay attention to. But this case in particular uh, goes to the whole uh, the whole issue about meat processing and COVID. And uh, there's a lot of potential national implications with this. Yeah, there certainly is. And the fact that it's, I think, happening in Washington, D.C., puts those discussions closer to legislators and regulators. And Todd, as you mentioned, meat processing has been on their minds for the past two or three years. I'm curious, from Food and Water Watch's perspective, they're alleging these uh, these uh, violations happened back in 2020. Are they looking to get yeah. money to recoup financial gains for the workers at the Smithfield plants? Are they hoping to find Smithfield? What's Food and Water Watch's ultimate goal with this case? Well, you know, Mike, it's interesting because uh, a lot of these issues are no longer ongoing, although uh, Food and Water Watch has alleged that uh, Smithfield continues to use this whole thing to its advantage. Um, I think that it's going to be interesting if this does go to a trial, which it appears that it's headed that way. A lot of those facts are going to come out. Um, I think, you know, that it's going to be something that I think Smithfield um, may have a little bit of, of a good defense on in the fact that, um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of this alleged conduct or whatever we're talking about here really isn't uh, necessarily ongoing. You know, we're kind of past the, 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 uh, the COVID situation. And I think that right now, when you look at the original lawsuit, uh, Food and Water Watch has asked for uh, some very minimal damages to be recouped. Uh, there's really nothing in what they've asked uh, that would protect workers in any way. Um, it's really very specific to DC's law in that, um, you know, this law is put in place to uh, to go after companies that, that uh, deceive consumers in a way. And so, um, you know, really a lot of this isn't, isn't going to have uh, the effect of really changing situations in, in some of these meatpacking plants, uh, whatever those may be. Uh, but really it looks to be, it looks to be a lawsuit that's, 
really trying to garner more attention uh, to those sorts of issues. Certainly garner some headlines, drive some donors, and perhaps set a precedent there in Washington, D.C. Todd, as you mentioned, this all relates back to 2020 and the pandemic rollout. And NPPC, when this case was first filed, they came out with a response. And I think it's important to remember just how disrupted the hog industry was during that first month and a half, yeah. two months of COVID pandemic time when these hogs were backing up. Yeah, Mike, you know, it was quite astounding. You think back to that time. Um, a lot of farmers were basically holding on to hogs that they needed to be sending off for slaughter. Um, you know, and really the estimation at the time, I believe it was June of 2021, or maybe it was before that, um, that more than 40% of pork production capacity <clears throat> was down during that COVID shutdown. Um, you know, and it came at a time where, as I said, farmers were looking to ship off animals and it was just, it was really a horrible situation. We saw a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of hogs put down. Um, you know, the whole meat supply chain was interrupted. Um, and as you know, we're not really anywhere near that kind of a situation now. In fact, we're seeing uh, some movement towards expanding local uh, small processing capacity when it comes to meat. And um, so, yeah, you know, uh, I know NPC NPPC at the time was really really up in arms about what was going on, and uh, we saw a really difficult time for hog producers. And I think. Some of that's been overcome. You know, we've kind of moved on now. So it's really going to be quite an interesting uh, play out of, of the situation here to see what uh, what becomes of this lawsuit and whether uh, Food and Water Watch really has much of a leg to stand on. It will. And especially if it goes to a trial in Washington, D.C., that could be a jury that doesn't understand a whole lot about agriculture. It could lead to a very interesting outcome. Todd, I'm sure you're going to continue to follow this story as it develops. Tell our listeners, where can they go to keep up with your reporting? Yeah, just come to uh, DTNPF.com. Uh, we have a lot of, uh, cover a lot of Ricky views and courts are certainly one of those. They certainly are. The courts are setting the law in a lot of places in agriculture. Todd Neely, DTN staff reporter, thanks for bringing us up to speed on what's developing in the courts there. And folks, do be sure to tune in tomorrow. We're going to talk with Arlen Suderman about what's developing, not just in the ag commodity markets, but we're also going to look more broadly at the global economy. Tune in on Friday for AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. We gather together in communities across the nation to remember and honor, to celebrate and support, to light the night. Join us as we lift our lanterns high in order to move toward a world free of blood cancers. Join us as we light the night for a loved one. Join us. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Our mission is to cure leukemia, lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease, and myeloma. Our aim is to improve the quality of life of patients and their families. Join us. We are LLS, and when we walk, cancer runs. Join your community and help bring light to the darkness of cancer. Join us as we light the night. Find your local event at lightthenight.org. That's lightthenight.org.